Hello. Now we have, we have power. Thank you for having me here today. Uh, we sure do appreciate uh, your support of our work in Sudan. And uh, I'd like to focus on some of the men and women of faith that we work with. They're incredible men and women of Christian faith being persecuted for that faith in Sudan. And I hope this uh, message today is both encouraging and challenging to you. I know it is to me. Every time I uh, think of some of the activities and statements that these men and women have made in the face of some of the dire persecution, uh, it humbles me. It, it really does convict me sometimes of the way I'm living my life, and it challenges me to be a more ardent speaker on behalf of Christ where he's planted me. And I hope uh, today that that's the same case that you'll take away from this message. Uh, what I'd like to do is I'd like to start by just uh, quoting Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 for you. It's a passage that's pretty well known. Most of you have heard it or at least read it a number of times. Jesus, or, or through the uh, Holy Spirit, the writer of Hebrews, says the following. Therefore, we also, get that, we also, it includes us. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us or entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher or perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and that's why I titled the message today, The Great Cloud of Witnesses. And that cloud is growing. That, cr that cloud grows with each and every new believer, every man, woman, and child who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ comes a part of the testimony of God's goodness and his faithfulness to him or her through Jesus Christ. And if you've done you're part of that cloud of witnesses. But what I'd like to do is share you some of the stories from our work in Sudan. And we're going to start with one that you're probably familiar with. This year, Miriam Abraham became the face of the atrocities of all that's going on against religious uh, freedom in North Sudan. How many of you have heard or followed her story this year? Okay, a good majority. Miriam was born to a Muslim father, a Christian mother. She lives in North Sudan. She married Daniel, a South Sudanese, who's also a Christian. Daniel was one of the lost boys from South Sudan, if you followed any of their story. And now he's uh, been naturalized as a citizen in the U.S. living up in New Hampshire. But Miriam married Daniel... And uh, she was a daughter of these two diverse religions. Very different. Muslim father, Christian mother. From the very beginning, the Muslim father had nothing to do with Miriam's raising. Was never home, never there, never saw his daughter. She was raised in the home by the Christian mother. Taken to church. Learned hymns, Bible stories, Bible scriptures. Accepted Christ as her Lord and Savior at a very young age. In fact, she says, I was never a Muslim. That's the background. When she married Daniel, 
she became pregnant with uh, their oldest son, Martin. And when, uh, she, when Martin was around 18 months old, became pregnant with their second child. At this point, relatives of her father brought charges against Miriam, charges of apostasy in North Sudan. You see, any government that's run by an Islamic government under Sharia law, that's the Islamic law, holds that the religion of the father passes down to the religion for the children. So they said, the Muslim, even though she had no inkling to follow Islam. Charges for apostasy in the courts of North Sudan carry a death sentence. They arrested her, brought her before the court. The court gave her an option. You have three days to think about this, Miriam. You can come back into the court and you can renounce your faith in Christ, go back to the faith of your forefathers, and we'll release you. What would you do if you were given that same choice? After three days, Miriam was brought before that tribunal again. And she said, there is no way I'm going to deny my Lord and Savior. She said, I've never known a day where I've not been a Christian. So they passed the sentence. They handed down the sentence of 100 lashings as soon as her second child was born. That was for adultery. And then for apostasy, a sentence of death by hanging after that second child was two years old and weaned. Well, while in prison, Martin had to accompany her. So here is the 18-month-old son, Martin, alongside her mother, pregnant, nine months pregnant, in prison. Miriam gave birth to Maya with, with shackles still around her ankles. But international outcry against this uh, treatment of Miriam was pretty substantial. I think it caught North Sudan's government off guard. All over the world, people started rallying around Miriam for her cause, for freedom to be released. Here we are in front of the North Sudan embassy in Washington, D.C., picketing and marching and trying to get them to do something that their government's not used to doing, releasing someone who's a Christian from jail. We also uh, marched in front of the White House. International outcry became so great that the government of Sudan released Miriam. The very next day, she's at the uh, airport in Khartoum and re-arrested or, or detained again for four to five hours. They said, we thought she was going to be re-arrested. They said she was traveling on a South Sudanese passport illegally. So once they settled that issue, Miriam was allowed to leave with her family. She arrived in Italy first, and then she came to the U.S. Miriam became the face of the atrocities of what's going on in North Sudan, and it became public, much like before. It caught the government of North Sudan off guard. Those challenges that Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 talk to us about, those are challenging to me. Lay aside the weight. Get rid of all the sin that ensnares you, keeps you down, keeps you from fulfilling all that you're called to do as Christians. Run with endurance. Look to Jesus. I'm challenged by that. But verse 4, chapter 12, really, really sobers me up. Verse 4 says this, You have not yet 
resisted to bloodshed. Let that sink in for a second. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed. I haven't. I have not shed one drop of blood for my faith in Christ. But others have. Others. Fulfilling Jesus' own prophecy, right? If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. It's amazing. All of this persecution against Christians just goes to show that the Bible is true. It's fulfilling the things that were promised. If you're followers of Christ, because the world is at enmity with God, and you're following God, the world will be at enmity with you. We are to expect some of these things. PPF supports the persecuted believers, the Christians in Sudan. And in the process, I've met some incredible people, some incredible men and women of faith. I'd like to share a few of those stories. This picture is a little rough. It's taken back in the 1960s. Reverend Gideon Adwok from a little village called Malut in the Upper Nile region. Upper Nile is now part of South Sudan. It's just below North Sudan. In the 1960s, go back a little bit, Sudan got its independence from Great Britain and from Egypt. Okay? Keep that in mind. By 1964, the government of North Sudan had come to the point where they wanted to compromise the entire country. Sudan, before South Sudan split from North Sudan, used to be the largest country in Africa. Very large. They wanted to Islamize the entire nation whether they go willingly or by force. So in 1964, Muslims from North Sudan came into Malut, and they found Gideon Adwok, pastor of the church there. And they said, we're coming back in two weeks. We give you an option. You start to follow Islam, or we will kill you. Gideon goes to his wife, and he says, God has called me to be a pastor of this church. I'm not leaving. And he didn't. Two weeks later, they came back. They took Gideon and two of his elders from his church out to the middle of the village, before the entire village, and they killed him. He shed blood. He resisted to bloodshed. There is a great cloud of witnesses. That cloud is growing. Each and every new believer, you're part of it if you're a follower of Christ. We met Santino not too long ago. Santino was a slave in North Sudan, abducted from South Sudan. You'll notice the cross, if you can see it around his neck down here, from a Christian home, abducted, sold into slavery in North Sudan. When, North, when South Sudan became its own country in July of 2011, Santino got an idea. I'll run for freedom. And that's what he did. From the little signature down here, this picture was taken in October of 2011, just shortly after he made his way back to South Sudan. We asked him about it. He said he has no recollection of his life before being abducted at the age of, say, 13. Situational amnesia from the trauma. We met Mary Cole at the same time. Same place. Mary had fled from Abia. It's a little tiny village just on the border between North and South Sudan. A lot of oil in Abia. The government wanted all of the tribes that lived in this village 
removed because they were not for that government. They wanted to replace them with people who were more in line with the National Congress Party politics. So Mary and her entire village fled. Mary and her daughter jumped on the back of a truck at the border between North and South Sudan. The North Sudanese army jumped into the back of that truck with machetes, and they started hacking everyone to death. Mary saw her daughter die, and then they stopped the attack. Mary was uninjured physically. Uh, you can tell by the look, she couldn't make eye contact with us. Traumatized by the treatment that the North Sudan government and their armies. Many are burned, you'll notice from this gentleman. And Leah has a unique story. She was born blind, South Sudan village. The Janjaweed militia came in in the middle of the night to attack, to kill, destroy steal whatever they could from her village. Many of the villagers fled into the bush for safety. Leah's blind. She couldn't. There was nobody to help her out of the village. As, an as a result of that encounter, this little child is born. Leah's testimony is that of Joseph, if you remember. She says, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Her daughter now, at this age, I think she was like nine or ten years old here, she has become the eyes of Leah. She watches over her mother. So what was meant for evil, Leah sees now as a means for good for her. Pastures. I don't know if you can tell his uh, chest scars here. Pastures that are found, discovered by the North Sudan, are, are tortured. These scars were taken. You'll notice Samaritan's persons in the back. We partner with them in certain areas of Sudan. And this pasture was located there. So <clears throat> I brought brochures with Joseph's story. If you'd like to take one of these or a photo of Joseph on the back table, back there, please feel free to do that and pray for Joseph. He was also abducted as a young boy, 9 or 10 years old, sold into slavery in north to a Muslim master. That master put him in charge of the uh, goats, the cattle, and the camels. One day, he's out with the camels, and he hears Christian hymns being sung from a tukul, that's their house, nearby. He leaves the camels for a minute goes and worships, spends longer worshiping than he'd like to admit because he reminds him of his family, his Christian family when he grew up. When he comes back out, camels are missing. Goes to the master, says, the camels are missing, I'm sorry. What were you doing? I was worshiping. If you want to worship Jesus, I'm going to treat you like Jesus, he says. He crucified Joseph. Put nails through his hands and his feet and didn't know what he was doing, so he put nails through his knees as well. Never erected the cross. Kept the cross horizontal on the floor, on the ground, outside. Seven days, the Muslim master's son comes out, gives Joseph water and food. On the seventh day, takes the nails out, carries Joseph to a nearby medical clinic where he miraculously survives. But he's handicapped because of the nails through the knees. Can't do the physical labor that the Muslim master now demands of him still. So the master sells him to a certain group. wasn't PPF, but there's a, there was a group in South Sudan buying slaves back. They bought Joseph, took him to his home village, bought him for the price of a goat. At that time, it was about $35. They look at human life as chattel. And here he is at 18 years old. He's a dinka, very tall boy. Big smile on his face. When we first met him, we brought a doctor in. I think he was about 13 or 14 men. And uh, we had the doctor look at him, assess his injuries, 
At 18, we go back and we ask him some more questions. We said, Joseph, they gave him the name Joseph, by the way. He wasn't born with Joseph. After Joseph from the Bible, sold into slavery. He said, Joseph, how do you feel master? This is what he said. He said, I wish my Muslim master would know the joy that I have in Christ. I wonder if you and I were treated that way, if we could say the same thing. Amazing. Churches are bombed, they're destroyed. We run into numerous churches, the physical structures. And then we see Bibles that are burned. This, uh, this little village is Corfloos. It's been name changed since this picture was taken. But in September of 2007, that little building up there was the church building. September, late September 2007, all the children in the church were outside singing hymns. They were actually preparing for Christmas services very early. And they were out there with the pastor and the pastor's wife. It's getting near dusk. A man comes up in military outfit, uniform, and he asks one of the kids on the outside, what are you doing? We're learning hymns and songs for Christmas. Oh, he starts dancing, getting into the middle of the group, and then he takes out a hand grenade and he blows himself up. Kills himself, but he kills six of the children. He injures a whole bunch of others. So we fly in, we get word that day that that happened. Plane in, we take out the wounded, we take them to a hospital. Some of them survived, some didn't. And then a year later, some ladies from Maryland wanted to go and encourage that church. So this picture up here was taken in 2008. You can see the ladies right there from Maryland. And uh, they were going in to encourage the church. But in essence, the church there encouraged us in their faithfulness. It's amazing. The great cloud of witnesses whether it's Miriam or any one of these others, Santino or Joseph, and that cloud is continuing to grow. I also have the great privilege of working with the Voice of the Martyrs. I've seen a lot of material from the Voice of the Martyrs. I'm glad you're supporting them as well. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs is just like Persecution Project Foundation, except they're much bigger, and they're worldwide. We're located in North and South Sudan. They're located in all 57-plus countries that are persecuting Christians. But we are, Persecution Project is the hands and feet of VOM in Sudan, in North and South Sudan. We used to be their hands and feet in Kenya as well. But this year, Kenya is getting much more attention. A lot of the uh, Somali Muslims are coming across the border. In Mombasa, they're attacking churches and killing pastors. Up in Nairobi, they're taking over Westgate Mall that I'm sure you heard about last year, this year. Killed 67 in the mall if they couldn't recite parts of the Koran or name Muhammad's mother's name. That's going on in Kenya now. Every year around this time, November, we submit project proposals to the Voice of the Martyrs for consideration for funding for the following year. Last year, we submitted this project for Kenya. It was a family of martyrs project. That means one of the family members died as a martyr for the faith. This one was for a woman named Mary. Her husband, who I'll call AJ, was born in a, a little tiny village near the Somali border in Kenya. He was in a strict Muslim family. He said he read the Koran religiously. He prayed five times a day so that he could be assured of paradise when he died. He was actually the head of the Islamic society in his high school. 
And then one day he read a passage from the Koran. It was Surah 46, verse 9. If you want to look it up later, feel free to do that. Surah 46, verse 9. In that passage, the prophet Muhammad's writing, and he says there, I am nothing original among messengers. He goes on to say, I don't know what will become of you or of me. Indicating that even the prophet that they're following doesn't know what's going to happen to him after his death, much less those who follow him. Now, to setting, AJ was like, why am I following a man that doesn't know what he's, what's going to happen? So instead, he started to read the teachings of Musa and Esau. Okay, in Arabic, that's Moses and Jesus. The Torah and the Bible. And he was really particularly struck with the words of Jesus in John 14, 6. You're familiar with those, I'm sure. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. A.J. was struck with that, the certainty of Jesus' words. He said this man spoke as one who had authority, as one who spoke the truth. And you and I know he does have the authority. A.J. at that point put his trust and hope in Jesus Christ. A disciple, a follower Immediately, his family in this little village rejected him. All of his, uh, they started hurling insults and rocks at him. A.J. joined a group called Youth with a Mission. Youth with a Mission, he got some training there. He met his future wife, Mary, there. And then when they got married, they went back to her home country of Nigeria, suffering much the same way as Sudan is now with a Muslim north and a Christian south. And they went right on the border, in those two areas, right in the middle of Nigeria. And they planted a church. They wanted to be close with her family. Her parents were from Nigeria. For two to three years, they planted this church until the congregation could run it themselves. At that point, A.J. said to his wife, I need to go back to my home village. I need to be a witness to the people who knew me before I became a Christian. So they did. Immediately, the insults and the rocks and the threats continued against A.J. and his family. February 7th of 2013, the Muslims came to his door and shot A.J. in the head, killing him. They turned the gun towards Mary and they said, if you don't leave immediately with your three sons, we're going to do the same to you. Now, you'll be happy to know that VOM had approved that project for this year. So they're supporting Mary and the three sons. Sending the three sons to school. Supporting Mary while she learns a vocation. This is what Mary said at AJ's memorial. She said AJ was a man who had a passion to reach the Somalis. He was a bold Christian who would enter church boldly to worship on Sundays. As the Somalis hurled stones and insults at him, he was not ashamed to identify with Christ or to be recognized as a Christian. We went through persecution. She said, in fact, in 1999, there was a time where we had to live at the police station because there was a threat that the Somali mob would burn down our home. She said, our faith was so strong and we were so committed to Christ that death did not scare us. She said, A.J. was often asked by his friends to try to persuade him to 
returned to the faith of his forefathers. A.J.'s response was always, what, what am I, a goat? In other words, are you able to lead me along like that? He said, I'm a man. I made a sound decision to follow Jesus Christ. And he said, up until the point of his death, he always claimed that he would never return to his vomit. His words. Great cloud of witnesses includes A.J. and his wife. Amazing stories of people of faith. Um, this next picture is of a man and his wife that I've met in Kenya and had the privilege and honor of, of working with. Uh, this is Pastor Chris Okumu and his wife Joanne. They work in a church just on the edge of Kabira, largest slum in all of Africa. Now, if you're familiar with kilometers, it's seven kilometers long, one kilometer wide. Not very large. Got over a million people living in it. Most of them live in little homes that are 10 feet by 10 feet. He put his church on the edge of Kabira. For one whole year, he witnessed to one Muslim man before that man converted to Christ. Now, in this church, he has three services on Sunday, each one 200 to 300 people. In, in 2007, in December, you might have remembered this in the news, there was an election in Kenya. And then, things went downhill. The second most populous tribe in Kenya accused the first most populous tribe in Kenya of election fraud. The two tribes throughout the entire country started to fight each other. Neighbors who used to eat with one another, all of a sudden they're burning each other's homes down. They're killing one another. Now, in Kabira, the Muslims took advantage of this situation. And they would attack Christians who were trying to help in that area. So they, the youth came against this church. They had lit torches one night. And they came to burn down Pastor Chris's church. And when they got there, they looked at the church and it was already on fire. And so they walked by, thinking that some of their friends had already, already done it. The next day, they walked by the church and they realized that it hadn't burned down. In fact, it was never on fire. So those, those young men came to the church service that next Sunday. And in the midst of the sermon, they raised their hand. Pastor. And they told Chris what they were, had planned to do that week. Why is it, Pastor, that your church is not burned? We saw it on fire. Pastor Chris pointed to God. He said, I don't know, really, brothers, but I do know that my God is able to protect those who follow him. And those men put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ because of that. Amazing testimonies. I have a friend uh, named Tychicus. It's an alias, but he, he writes to me, emails me every once in a while. Uh, this, actually, this event actually happened, but I think it was back in 2008, but I just heard about it last year. He told me about a young girl named Fatima. Fatima's from Saudi Arabia. One of the worst, most hostile countries against Christianity. No churches allowed to be built. Fatima was a young girl, teenager, depressed, couldn't find hope, suicidal. Friends told her that Muhammad's teachings were in the Bible also. We know that's a falsity, but that's what they told her. So she's seeking, she's desperate to get out of this depressed state. So she finds a Bible. She starts reading, hoping to find Muhammad's words inside. She said she never did find Muhammad in the Bible. 
But what she did find was that God's presence was near to her. She said that when she read the words, she knew that they were true and intact. And she put her faith in Christ. She's from a strict Islamic family as well. She started to blog about her experience, trying to win Saudis to Christ, saying that Jesus Christ loves the Saudi people. She, went, she used the alias of Reina. Reina means contented one. And as she's posting these blogs, she's getting responses, some good, some bad. One time there was one man who wrote, apparently a man, if I had you in my hands, he wrote, I would kill you twice. We are not honored by Saudi Christians. You worship a cursed, crucified Lord. Fatima just wrote back, May God give you understanding. May he open your eyes to the truth. She said it out of There came a time where she, uh, she realized she had to tell her family. Because without telling her family the truth, she said, I know they're doomed to an eternity without God. So at a family function, she told them, I'm a follower of Christ. Immediately, the family splits into two groups. They start arguing with one another. They come back from the family function, and she realizes her older brother has broken into her, home, into her room. He's sitting on her bed with her laptop open. She knew immediately this was not good. She had on her screensaver a cross. Some of her blog posts were saved on her desktop there. He was reading those and getting angrier and angrier. And he stormed out of the room and she tried to barricade her door again. She went online. She asked all of her followers to pray for her for four hours, she wrote. One of her last statements was, Jesus tells us, blessed are the persecuted. And she said, by God, unto death I am a Christian. Jesus Christ is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Her brother came back in, storming into her room. He burned her face, he burned her back, he cut out her tongue, and then he killed her. Is that radical Christianity, or is that normal Christianity? At first, when I heard that story, when I read it on the email, I was like, that's risk-taking. That's risk-taking Christianity. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, is there any different kind of Christianity? <laughs> when you accept Christ, all of a sudden the world's against you. Because the world does not accept Christ. We shouldn't expect anything different. The scriptures constantly tell us that. In this world, you will have trouble. But we take heart because God, Jesus Christ, overcame the world. Ah. Before I get to this story, I'd, I'd actually like to take us back to Hebrews. Um, you know, Hebrews 12, of course, I'm not going to make an astute statement here. You know this. Hebrews 12 follows Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 has come to be known as the Hall of Faith, and most of you know that too. It's all these Old Testament men and women. In fact, the very first verse there says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Right from the very beginning of chapter 11, it talks about what faith is. And then it proceeds to say, look at these men and women. 
These men and women of the Old Testament who are looking forward to a Messiah, to a Savior, have done this and that out of faith. All these great things, all these great men and women of the faith that you can read about. And then, as I'm reading through chapter 11, I get to verse 40. And verse 40 floors me. God having something better for us. God having something better for us. For us. The Hebrews, New Testament book. Not Old Testament. It's for us. What did God have better for us? Old Testament men and women looking ahead to the Savior. New Testament men and women of God looking back at the Savior. We had Jesus Christ. We have Jesus Christ. We have the Bible. We know what he did. We know when he did it. We know what he said. We have his words. We have the instructional manual. We have the words of life, as one of the disciples said. Where else can we go? God has something better for us. These men and women did all this stuff in chapter 11 without Christ, looking forward to Christ. What are we doing? What great steps of faith have we taken? It's a sobering question. And if you struggle, if you look at your life and you're like, I haven't done any of these great things, that's when we get to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. So, let us lay aside all the weight and the sin which ensnares us, which keeps us down. Let us run with endurance. It's not a sprint. It's an entire marathon, your whole life. And if you're still struggling, look to Jesus. Look to him. He's the one that gives you your faith. He perfects your faith. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. And now he's at the right hand of the throne of God. We met Pastor Kumi up in North Sudan in the Nuba Mountains. We were driving along, going somewhere. There, Pastor Kumi is standing in his home with a whole bunch of other men. So we stopped. We wanted information. Pastor Kumi, he was actually a professor at a local seminary there that is now, because of the bombing that's going on every single day, it's now closed. But he's still there, along with these other men. They're all evangelists, all pastors standing with him, all teachers at that college, that seminary. We stopped. We said, Pastor how many bombs have fallen on your village? How many people have died? How many people have left your village because of these bombs? How much med- You get where we were going? How much medicine do you have? <laughs> we wanted statistics. We wanted information. We could put it in a newsletter to give to you guys. Now, Pastor Kumi didn't want to talk about that stuff. Pastor Kumi, evangelist heart. He wanted to talk about the things of God. He said, listen, brothers, (laughs) his words will stick with me. He said, listen, he said, the Nuba Mountains is 70% Muslim or animist, 30% Christian. You've got 1.2 million people living in this area that's being bombed, but only 30% are Christians. He said, these Muslims that are being bombed and these animists, 
They're coming to our He said, we have an opportunity when they come. He said, we can share with them what little we have. They need shelter, we let them have our homes. They need medicine, we give them what we have. They need water, food, clothing, we give it to them. And then we go door to door and we present Jesus Christ. He said, we go door to door bringing life. He said, you know what the Sudan military does? The Sudan armed forces go door to door killing, stealing, and destroying. You know a tree by its fruit. We bring life in Jesus Christ's name. And these people realize it. He said, if we need anything, we need Bibles in the languages of the people. That's right there. We left. As soon as we could, we purchased thousands of these New Testament Bibles. Uh, not the full Bible, because their languages don't have the full Bible translated yet. But we brought all of these thousands of New Testaments up there and let Pastor Kumi do them. And that brings me to the passage that was read for you earlier. And then I'll close with a couple more statements. Romans, you're familiar with it. Some of it's very powerful. Whoever calls upon the name of the saved. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. You call on Jesus and you're saved. But then in this passage of scripture, there are questions. Let's look at them. Starting in verse 14. How then, it says, shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Okay, so apparently you need to believe before you can call. Once you call, you're saved call on Jesus, you're saved. But you need to believe first. But then there's another question. It goes on, it says in verse 14, the second part, and how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? They need to hear about Jesus before they believe. Believe before they call. Call before they're saved. So in order to get to the saving, they need to hear. Got it? Let's go. There's more questions. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Needs to hear so they can hear, so they can believe, so they can call, so they can be saved. And finally, one more question. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? We need to be sending people, whether it's your workplace, your village in Africa, or your town in Alaska. We need to be sending people to your family members, to your email list, to the jail, to the nursing homes. We need to send people to preach. Send, preach, hear, believe, call, saved. Now here's the important part. We have been sent. Jesus Christ did the sending. It's the Great Commission. Matthew 28, starting in verse 19 and 20. To his disciples. So your only question today is, are you a disciple of Christ? He says to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples. Go. We are sent. So what are we doing? Let me finish up with two stories. Next one is uh, Pastor Callow. Pastor Callow is an elderly man now. Uh, he's also up in the Nuba Mountains. He came to Christ in the 1950s 
when Sudan got their independence. Western missionaries came to his village. They presented the gospel. They preached. He heard, he believed, he called, he was saved. 1950s, 1960s, North Sudan's government says we're going to Islamize the entire country. They kick out all the Western missionaries. Pastor Callow steps forward. He says, there's nobody here to preach. I'm going to take over the, the, the role of an evangelist. And he was so successful that the North Sudan government took notice of Pastor Callow. And they ar arrested him twice. Put him in prison for eight and a half years. They moved him from prison to prison to prison to prison. Tortures, unspeakable. We won't even get into it. Everything that could be done to this man was done to this man. And they asked him to recant his faith in Christ. And he refused. They finally moved him to the notorious Cobra prison. The worst prison in all of North Sudan. And there they kind of cha changed their tactics a little bit. Instead of threatening and torturing, now they promised. You convert back to the faith of your forefathers, Islam, and we'll give you a good job in the government. We'll give you a good salary. Hmm. No. I will not deny my Savior, Jesus Christ. He started winning the other prisoners, the worst prisoners in all of Sudan. He started winning them to Christ. Christianity was spreading in this prison. <coughs> the government officials did not want to make Pastor Callow a martyr because they thought Christianity would spread even faster. So they released him. We met him here in this village, his home village. This is his daughter in the middle. She sang beautiful hymns for us. He prayed over us. 95% of his village looks at this man as their spiritual forefather, that he presented Christ to them and they accepted Jesus Christ. 95% of the village. You probably have somebody like that here, Soldatin. I have somebody like that in Culpeper, Virginia. Mason Hutchison wins multitudes to Christ. And finally, let me share with you a brief story about Pastor Richard Wormbrand. He is the one who started the Voice of the Martyrs, a Romanian pastor. Stuck with Christianity even when communism was coming into Romania. Arrested, locked deep in the recesses of a Romanian prison for 14 plus years, solitary confinement, big thick stone walls, and an evangelist pastor's heart. And if you've read any of his books, he doesn't hold anything back. He says while he was in this isolation cell, he would cry out to God. He would question it. God, why have you placed me here? I'm an evangelist. All I want to do is tell people about Christ so they can hear and believe, call, and get saved. Why am I here? <coughs> he got this message, and it came from God. He said, start knocking on those walls physically. And to his amazement, the guys on either side of him started knocking back. They could hear the knocks through these thick stone walls while they couldn't hear the voices. So Pastor Wormbrand started to teach the men on either side of him Morse code. It took a long time, but what else were they going to do? When they learned Morse code, he presented the gospel to them. They, in turn, took and taught the men on either side of them. And they went through the prison. Years later, after he was released, he was speaking publicly, did a tour of speaking engagements, and he was sharing, and a man at the end of the service came up to him and said, 
I just want to let you know, I am one of those men who came to Christ from hearing the gospel preached by the knocks on my cell wall. I don't know what kind of challenges you face, but they're not too big for our God. Our God, we have to start thinking outside the box. We don't want to have a Christianity that looks this way in America, in Alaska, in Soldatna. I don't know how it looks here. I'm coming from all over. <laughs> but you don't want to get caught in thinking the same thing. Now, look, don't get me wrong, there's only one way to have it. Don't change that. Jesus Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's it. But there are many ways to express that message. So, we're coming up on the Christmas season. Throw a track into your Christmas cards. Visit the jails. Go to the nursing homes. Talk to, there's a lady, my, my co-worker in Culpeper, I was going to share this, so I'll in a second. My co-worker in Culpeper, her mom, elderly mom, goes to the nursing home. The people, the ladies of who hasn't had a visitor for months? And she goes and she talks to those people and she gives them the gospel. Hold a backyard Bible study when it's warm enough. Move it indoors if it's cold. Support Christian education. Support Christian television. Radio. Christian satellite TV that reaches into all of these countries. There's a map here somewhere. All of these countries where it's forbidden to have a church. That satellite doesn't know forbidden. Support a foster child. Support a child overseas who can go to a Christian church who only had the money. Adopt a child if you're able to. My wife and I were looking into this. We, we have two adopted girls. The second one, we were, we were looking at Azerbaijan because 99 point something percent of the people in Azerbaijan are Muslim. And we thought, if we fuck one child, more than likely that child's going to come to Christ. Partner with groups like Persecution Project Foundation, Voice of the Martyrs. Partner with them. And you already are. Today, at I'm going to be presenting all of our ministry outreaches, and they're, they're numerous. Everything that we do, you do, because you're partnering with us. And I hope that's a time of encouragement. I hope you get to stay. Uh, we'll have a little lunch afterwards, and uh, then, then the presentation. But thank you, and I hope this encourages you as it encourages me.